calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hello there and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. The magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, a prolific anthologist who had two new anthologies come out recently. The Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination out of Tor Books and also Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond. To learn more about that, visit johnjosephadams.com slash oz reimagined. The stories on the podcast are produced by Skyboat Road Company, Inc., spearheaded by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrator Stefan Rudnicki, and that's in association with Jim Freund. And let's roll with the stories. Our next offering for the March issue is The Bolt Tightener by Serena Ulibari. The stories read for you by Stefan Rudnicki. Serena Ulibari teaches creative writing at the University of Colorado, Boulder, where she's also working toward her MFA. She's on the editorial staff of Timber Journal and the panel of judges for New York City Midnight Fiction and Screenwriting Contests. She was a 2012 recipient of the Thompson Award for Western American Writing. Her fiction has appeared in Zahir, a journal of speculative fiction, Bartleby Snopes, Decomp Magazine, Monkey Bicycle, and elsewhere. And that does it for this week's intro. So without further ado, let's make the jump to light speed. The Bolt Tightener by Serena Ulibari There are 1,800 bolts total, the old man said. You'll work every night until sunrise. Always go in order. Never skip a bolt. Is that all? Sean asked. They treaded water on the inside of the seawall, the old man twisting one of the giant bolts with sharp, seasoned movements. That's enough, believe me. At first, mark where you left off for the next day, but a few times around and you'll get to know them like your own family. Sean looked at the line of cold metal bolts, doubting he could ever look on them the same way he did his young wife Lynn or their baby, just born and brown as a chestnut. He had accepted this strange job to support them. The seawall had been there for as long as Sean or his parents or grandparents could remember. It created a U-shape around the bay, closing the city off from the ocean. 
Legend said that years ago the lock would open now and then to admit a ship full of ghostly white men who brought fabric and exotic meats and traded with the people of the city for rice and sweet fruits. But even the lock had been closed for a century or more. When the sky lightened, Chon and the old man pulled themselves onto the floating walkway that ran along the inside perimeter of the seawall. Chon's skin felt puckered from the water. The old man's was wrinkled leather. A web of thick scars covered his legs. "'What will you do now?' Chon asked. They followed the floating walkway to a small office at the edge of the beach. "'I'm going up to the mountains,' the old man said, "'to get as far away from the sea as I can.' Is there anything dangerous in the water? The old man was silent for a moment. Just be cautious around bolt number 841. Before Chon could ask what had made him so bitter, the old man handed him an envelope full of money. Every morning this will be waiting here. So much every day? Every day, the old man said. No one knows what you do, but it's the most important job in the city. The next night, Chon slid quietly out of bed, kissed Lin's sleeping face, and slipped on the wetsuit he'd bought for his new job. It had cost most of his first payment, but he was young and afraid Lin would shy away from his touch if his skin became tough like the old man's. He started at bolt number one. It was difficult to swim with the tool, a heavy metal octagon that fitted over the bolts. A lever extended from one side, and it took his full body weight to pull the lever and tighten the bolt. Each bolt was far enough apart that he had to swim several strokes between them. By bolt 29, Chon had developed a rhythm to his work. What began as tedium dissolved into meditation. He found peace in the repetition and the cold water that lapped around his body. When the rays of the sun peeked over the top of the seawall, he pulled himself back onto the walkway, marked his place on his waterproof map, and went home to have breakfast with his family. On the second night he was jarred from his peaceful groove by a sudden boom, something crashing against the outside of the seawall. The reverberations knocked him backward. The water on his side of the seawall sloshed over the floating walkway. The boom happened once more, and then stopped and Sean waited for the vibrations to fade away before he returned to his work. The ocean, he whispered to the bolts, the ocean waves. The water in the bay was always dull and steady, so he had never seen real ocean waves. He pictured the tiny waves in his child's bathwater, imagined them magnified to a size that would require this metal seawall to protect the city. During subsequent nights he searched for a pattern to the crashes against the outer seawall, but found none. They came whether it was clear or raining, windy or calm. Some nights they did not come at all. The crashes bothered him less the more he heard them. Chon found he was getting stronger. He swam with more ease than he had since he was a child, and it took less effort to hoist the tool up to the bolts. With the money he earned, he bought a new bassinet from the mountain traders, and Lin bought richer foods from the market. One day he made it nearly to dawn in his peace. The sky was a deep purple-blue. He almost didn't need his headlamp. He pulled the lever of his tool and was about to remove it to swim to the next one when he felt something move around his legs. He stopped and looked down. Yellow tendrils swam in the water. 
At first he thought it was the reflection of his headlamp, but then they solidified. Two bulbous eyes and sharp teeth appeared. Chon yanked the tool off the bolt and swam for the walkway. He pulled himself up, watching the water. The yellow tentacles disappeared back into the depths. Chon waited for the sun to brighten the sky a bit more. He checked his waterproof map, Bolt 841. He slid as slowly as he could back into the water and tightened the next several bolts. He should have asked the old man more questions. Lynn nursed the baby in their kitchen, and Chon looked out the window. He could see the strip of calm beach with the seawall standing guard. There was nowhere in the city where one could see over the top of it. Even if one climbed the mountains that bordered the other side of the city, the seawall would still dominate the horizon. "'I never noticed the seawall, really,' John said. "'It was always there, but I never cared.' "'Do you know what's on the other side?' Lynn asked. "'Did they tell you when you were hired?' "'They told me nothing except how to tighten the bolts. "'I think it would be exciting to go over to the other side, "'see the ocean without any walls, just reaching out to infinity.' She stroked the baby's dark hair. I'd never go, of course, even if I had the chance, but I'm sure it would be sublime. Finally, Chon reached the end of the seawall. Had he done in a few weeks what the old man had failed to do in forty years? He went to the office where he picked up his check to ask what he was supposed to do next. Start again at number one, the guard said. Chon jumped in the water at the start of the seawall and checked the bolt. It was as loose as it had been on his first night, looser even. He tightened, swam, and tightened some more. His meditation dissolved back into tedium. He slept more during the day, annoyed when the baby's cry would wake him. His irritation grew the closer his nightly rounds brought him to Bolt 841. Nervously, he approached number 841 for the second time, pointing the beam of his headlamp into the water. No writhing. No teeth or eyes. Not yet. He hefted the tool up to the bolt and began to turn. A single spiny tentacle rose silently from the water and curled around the lever of his tool. Sean froze. Another tentacle brushed the leg of his wetsuit, but he resisted the urge to kick. He waited, barely breathing, using his grip on the handle to keep his head above water. The tentacle slithered off the tool and slipped away. Weeks later, when he encountered 841, he nearly escaped with no encounter, but just as he turned the last rotation, he felt the prickly tentacles wrap around his ankle. He panicked, kicked, and swam for the walkway. He pulled his leg out of the water, and the thing with it, the yellow head dangled upside down, its mouth stretched open to an unnatural size, showing jagged vampiric teeth. John kicked again, and the tentacle squeezed tighter. Another snake toward his other leg. He hit the thing's bulbous head with his tool, but the flesh gave, and it seemed unharmed. He jerked his leg free away from the approaching tentacle and clawed at the one around his other leg. The fabric of his wetsuit tore, his foot exposed, but then the thing suddenly slipped back into the water. From then on, John skipped Bolt 841. With each rotation, he finished Bolt 840, then swam to the walkway and walked to 842, giving the creature a wide berth. It was after he had passed over it twice that the problems began. 
Each time he restarted his cycle, the bolts were just as loose as when he'd last seen them. But this time, when he reached bolt 800, he had less to tighten. By 825, he noticed that the metal seemed strained, as if something were pushing on it from the outside. At 8.30, water trickled in. A tiny stream oozed from the seam in the metal, the gap not wide enough for a finger. It took him twice as long to tighten these bolts. He used all his strength to lever the tool, and by the time the sun rose, he was as exhausted as he had been his first few nights. The next evening, he dreamt of water gushing through the seawall and flooding the city. He woke earlier than normal, and came down to the seawall to find that his dream was not far from reality. Water dripped through the seam, and the gap around bolt 835 was almost large enough to fit his hand. He attacked the bolts with renewed vigor, determined not to let the water win. Had he really allowed in a few months what the old man had prevented for forty years? Never skip a bolt, the old man had said. It was all because of that damned octopus, John thought. He remembered the scars on the old man's legs, the shredded ankle of his own wetsuit. Why should such a thing be allowed to live? John reached bolt 839 that night, managing to seal the gap enough that the water barely trickled through. He would deal with the monster at 841 the next night. Lynn's best kitchen knife was his weapon of choice. He lifted it from the drawer while Lynn and the baby slept, broke the broom handle, and tied the knife to the end of it. He held it above his head in the moonlight and felt a primitive power surge through his body. John had never wielded a weapon before. There were ancient pictures in the city museum of men in boats in the time before the seawall, using weapons like this against massive sea animals. John lowered his blade and began his trek to the seawall, resisting the urge to yell a primitive war cry to the sleeping city. He went directly to Bolt 841 and left his tool on the walkway. He would tighten nothing until the monster was dead. From the walkway he gazed down, his headlight illuminating his own reflection on the surface of the calm water. How deep was the water here? At least as deep as the seawall was high, he guessed. He dipped the weapon, cutting the water with the knife. His reflection faded into ripples. Nothing happened at first. Chon made a few more splashes. He would jump in if he had to, but if he could summon the creature and stay on the walkway, he had the advantage. His legs went out from under him before he realized the tentacle had snaked around his ankle. He hit the walkway with a painful thump, and the weapon rolled out of his hands. Just before the tentacles pulled him into the water, he grasped the weapon and pulled it with him. He thrashed in the water, stabbing blindly. Water poured into his nose. Salt stung his eyes. The tentacle released. John swam back to the walkway. John had just placed his hands to pull himself up when the tentacle resurfaced, wrapping around the handle of his homemade harpoon. He twisted the knife down on it. The dismembered tentacle flopped on the walkway like a grotesque fish, and the stump slithered back into the water. He pulled himself onto the walkway and crouched there, hugging his arms around his knees, his chin on the harpoon handle. He saw the creature's face beneath the water, the horrible human-like eyes, the menacing razor teeth, but Sean couldn't move his limbs to deliver a blow. He shivered, and the creature disappeared. He sat there until he stopped shivering. 
A steady waterfall poured through the gap at bolt 841. The neglected bolt stuck out nearly a foot away from the wall. Once more, John thought. He stirred the water with the tip of the knife again, watching more closely this time. He saw the teeth first, the mouth stretched unnaturally wide. The teeth drew closer, and then the mass of tentacles undulated around the face. Chon aimed at its center and stabbed. He felt the weapon strike, and he pulled back and stabbed again. Tentacle tips rose out of the water in an obscene dance of surrender, and he stabbed one more time. The water was cloudy, and he could see no face or teeth. The tentacles sunk under the surface, and Chon sat back, gripping the weapon to his chest. Then the crashes began. Just as he'd heard so many nights before, the violent crashing of a massive body against the outside of the seawall. The seawall shook, and the volume of water from the gap increased. Chon watched as the next crash jarred Bolt 841 to a diagonal. It hung precariously from its last threads. No! Chon yelled. The next crash dislodged the bolt. It splashed into the water. He dove after the bolt, but the heavy metal sank and he couldn't dive fast enough to save it. Another crash reverberated underwater and he felt dizzy with the shock of it. Chon resurfaced and swam for the walkway. He hefted the tool and frantically swam back to the nearest bolt to try to tighten it. Each new crash threatened to jar the tool out of his hands, send it to the depths like the lost bolt. It was too much. The crashes came faster now, and stronger. The bolt he was working on slipped out, nearly knocking him on the head. Chon swam for the walkway. There was a horrible creaking sound as the gap widened beyond repair. He looked back. A single yellow tentacle protruded through the gap. Rough, spiny, and a hundred times bigger than the one that had wrapped around his ankle. Chon turned and dove off the walkway, swimming as fast as he could toward the beach. The sky lightened with the first hint of dawn, and Chon imagined Lynn rising to the baby's morning cries and looking out to see the city being consumed. The crashes continued, and another metallic creak betrayed his failure. Maybe, Chon thought, maybe he could get there fast enough to take Lynn and the baby to the safety of the mountains. He swam and the seawall creaked again. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the tale. If so, and if you find the time, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. And if you haven't already subscribed to Lightspeed Magazine, please take a moment to consider it and check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. The stories are produced by Skyboat Road Company, Inc., which is spearheaded by the Audi and Grammy award-winning narrator Stefan Rutnicki and in association with Jim Freund. We also hope you'll check out Lightspeed Year One, a collection of audio stories from this podcast's first Hugo-nominated year. Look for it at audible.com. And that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Cheers from all of us at Lightspeed Magazine.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.